Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to study your word. We're told that your word is absolute truth, and as Jesus prayed, it is through your truth, your word, that we are sanctified. It is your word and the Holy Spirit that work together to bring us to spiritual maturity. Father, at this time we also pray for our nation. We continue to pray during this time where we are at war against the radical Islamic terrorists and continue to fight this battle that is so important, so crucial to our future and the future of freedom, future of Western civilization. Father, we pray that you would give our president wisdom, our other uh, leaders, both civilian and military wisdom and how they handle uh, intelligence information they receive, how they how they proceed, Father, we pray for our security people in airports and around the nation's borders that you would uh, just give them the information they need to continue to keep our borders secure. Father, we continue to pray for Israel, pray that you would uh, continue to pro- provide for this nation that we may be a, a support for Israel. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would challenge us with its importance, its truthfulness, and how it should be, the, the knowledge of your word should be the highest priority in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as most of you know, this last week I spent in Southern California at the annual WHW Ministries Conference uh, training pastors. As always, that was a very profitable time. And as frequently happens, the trip home was not. <laughs> I've got, we, I finally landed about 2.30 yesterday morning at uh, Providence due to some bad weather in Chicago. Don't fly through Chicago. You fly through Chicago, you're going to mess up one way or the other. So it's just a real test of your faith rest drill. But that was a very profitable time. It's profitable because it is a time spent with men who are pastors, associate pastors, men who want to be pastors, and who recognize the importance of training and the importance for congregations to support seminaries is central to our future. We need to think in terms of who's going to pastor our children and our grandchildren. Who are we preparing for the next generation? And that is the purpose of a seminary. And today is a special day because on this October the 10th is designated Chafer Seminary Day, Chafer Theological Seminary, time to focus on... Uh, the needs of the seminary and what they do, and to pray for the seminary. Now, you should have in your bulletin a color insert. And if you don't have one in your bulletin, there's some out on the table. Pick one up, and that gives you an, uh, gives you an introduction to Schaefer Theological Seminary. The seminary was founded in the early 90s for the purpose of training new pastors, teachers, evangelists, and missionaries. And I thought that this morning I would uh, 
just show you the, well, that's not the right one, show you the Schaefer Seminary introductory uh, slideshow to acquaint you with the ministry of Schaefer Theological Seminary. The central verse that the seminary uses that states their purpose is found in 2 Timothy 2.2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, 2 Timothy is a personal letter written by the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy, who at that time was pastoring the church in Ephesus. Paul at that time was in... Uh, prison in Rome and was about to be martyred. This is his last writing, and in there he is giving his final words of exhortation to Timothy to carry on the task of uh, the mission that Jesus first gave the disciples in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and that was to make disciples, that is, to make students. And this is a particularly important verse because It is directed to not a seminary professor. It's not to a seminary president. It's not to some sort of academician. It's directed to a pastor in the context of a letter giving the framework for a local church ministry. And I think that's important for us to recognize this, that one of the objectives of the pastor of a local church is to train men for the ministry. It's not just directed to the teaching of not what we might call non-professional, uh, everyday believers, but he, the pastor is also to be teaching at a level that provides a challenge to those men in the congregation who may have the gift of pastor-teacher that they can have the adequate foundation on which to build when they go to seminary. A lot of people have funny ideas about seminary. I know that throughout my career as a pastor, because I teach at a depth that goes beyond that of the normal uh, uh, emotional devotional on Sunday morning, that uh, people say, well, you ought to teach in seminary. I wouldn't want to teach in seminary. Think about it. In seminary, you're restricted to semesterly programs. So in a semester, you have, what, 16, 17 weeks. You meet twice a week. So that's 34 uh, classes, two-hour class, that's, uh, uh, thir- you ha- have, uh, 34 hours. If you have a, um, if, you, if it's a three-hour class, then you might have 50 hours of instruction. To go through the Pauline epistles in 50 hours, it's not a whole lot of depth. To go through the Gospel of John in 50 hours, we took at least 100 and maybe 120, and, uh, we would just barely scratch the surface. See, in seminary, the, the word seminary comes from the Latin word seminal which means seed. So all you do in seminary is plant the seeds in that young man who's going to be a pastor, in some cases older men, who are going to be pastors so that the Holy Spirit can use that, can uh, fertilize that over the years and produce some real fruit in a man's ministry so that he can go out and, and take those 30 lectures he had on the Gospel of John and turn them into a 200-hour series so that people can really get into the meat of the Word. Uh, trouble is, we, as usual, Christians always get things a little backward, and we have people who come out from seminary, they have a 50-hour, uh, maybe 50 lectures on the Gospel of John, they go out and teach it in 12 and think they did something. But see, we get things all screwed up. See, the idea is to train somebody. So you give them those seeds. You give them the foundation in seminary. You give them the original languages. You give them the tools of exegesis. You should go through, uh, during a seminary career, man should be taken through most of the books of the Bible. So at least he has a general understanding of the themes, the structures, the major doctrines, the backgrounds for every book of the Bible, and maybe a little more in-depth instruction in some of the key books such as you know, Romans, 1 Corinthians, John, Genesis, Psalms, uh, Exodus, Mosaic Law, Daniel, some prophecy, plus systematic theology, historical theology, and maybe a course or two on some other aspects related to ministry in the local church. But it's the job of the local church. Our Lord did not institute seminaries. He didn't institute Bible colleges. He instituted the local church. 
The local church is the centerpiece for everything, and so it is the local church that becomes the support, the bulwark, for seminaries and Bible colleges to train leaders for future generations. But everything needs to center eventually in the local church and the pastor who understands the importance of training men for the future. And this was Paul's exhortation and command to Timothy, to commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The seminary was named after Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. And in his book on grace, Dr. Schaefer wrote, quote, The divine ideal for the believer's life under grace remains unchangeable. When God is molding the desires of the heart, there is liberty. When he is empowering the life, there is victory. And this is the idea behind the seminary is it's built on the doctrines of grace. And, uh, off, and we teach from the systematic theology written by Dr. Chafer, not because he gets everything right or because that's the final word, but because it is a seven-volume work or eight-volume work, including the uh, index, which is the most extensive systematic theology that's been written. And uh, he is premillennial, pre-tribulational, dispensational. He understands free grace, not lordship, and he was... Though he was not trained in the original languages, he recognized the need for that. And when he founded Dallas Seminary, everybody had to have four years of Hebrew and four years of Greek. And, of course, they've drifted off course over the years. And this is why, this is typical. The average life of a seminary is 75 years. And that, uh, and so Dallas Seminary has gone beyond the, that time frame and they're showing that they follow the trends of history. We all, Chafer Seminary, will follow that same trend. That is just the way things are. People tend to uh, fall away from the, their devotion to the truth. So we went, wanted to go back to the original standards that Chafer established when he founded Dallas Seminary. The Apostle Paul laid the foundation for academic training when he commanded Timothy to train faithful men who would be capable of teaching others. The Old Testament, likewise, provides precedence for training men for ministry. Both Samuel and Elijah led training schools for the prophets. So following their examples, Chafer Seminary offers an excellent and challenging biblical education that will enhance your ability to minister in today's world. Now, Schaefer Seminary is built on certain distinctives. These, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, this is unique in and among seminaries out there to emphasize. You know, many schools emphasize their doctrinal statement. But let's face it, folks, and we live in a real world. Nobody wants to, or at least among conservatives and fundamentalists, nobody's going to say they really don't believe in the Bible. They have, an, in many schools, many churches have accurate doctrinal statements. It's what they actually do with those statements and what they mean by that statement is, is uh, how things fall apart. So to go beyond the doctrinal statement at Chafer Seminary, we've outlined some distinctives that help people understand the thrust of the school. First of all, the first distinctive is a literal hermeneutic. We adopt a consistent Normal or literal, that is a historical, grammatical, and rhetorical hermeneutic in every portion of Scripture. See, this is unique among covenant theologians, those who are amill or post-mill or hold to some sort of preterist or historicist view of prophecy. They're not consistent in their literal hermeneutic. They, when they get into prophecy, they jump over to some sort of allegorical interpretation. So we believe in a literal interpretation of Scripture with the single meaning of the text. Second distinctive is we emphasize Greek and Hebrew exegesis for years. And relating the exegesis to the development of systematic theology. We share a deep conviction that teaching the Word of God itself builds believers in the faith for fruitful service. It's not programs, it's not music, it's not uh, developing all kinds of uh, inner structures and seeker services and all the other modern trends. It is just the simple teaching 
of the Word of God that builds believers. Therefore, Greek and Hebrew exegesis is foundational to our educational program from beginning to end. Every year there is required Greek and Hebrew courses. We have a dispensational theology. Because of our literal hermeneutic, we arrive at a dispensational framework. That is, literal hermeneutics leads to a recognition that there's a distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church, that there's a unique spiritual life for the church-age believer and a unique purpose for the church. And so for believers in this age to be fruitful in their spiritual life, to reach maturity, they need to understand the Word of God from a dispensational framework. So scripture, so this, the, our distinctive goes on to read, however, we want CTS students to be able to think through and to construct theology for themselves. You have to be a good independent thinker. When you have pastors who are dependent on others, and we all are to some degree in any, in any field of life, you're always dependent to a certain degree on your mentors, on your teachers as you begin. But if you learn how to do what you're doing well, if you learn the tools, then you are able to build upon your teachers and develop and go beyond them. And we all stand on the shoulders of great men who have gone before us. The next distinctive is the sufficiency of Scripture. This is one of the most often overlooked elements in people's theology, and few who talk about it really understand it. What we mean by this is that we embrace Scripture's complete adequacy. For in it, God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. We believe, therefore, that the Word of God by itself is sufficient to prepare a person for a lifetime of effective ministry. You don't need to study psychology. You don't need to study techniques. You don't need to study uh, various salesmanship methodologies. You just need to know the Word of God. It is the Word of God plus the Spirit of God that builds a church. It's Jesus Christ who builds His church, and it's the job of the pastor-teacher to just feed the sheep. The next distinctive is God's grace, the freeness of God's grace. We hold fast to free grace. This is the view that God saves man by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That at the instant of faith in Jesus Christ... God imputes to the believer perfect righteousness. His salvation is not based on anything he does. His assurance is not based on anything he does. As the Reformers in the early years recognized that faith in Christ is assurance of salvation. It is not your works that provide assurance of salvation. We believe that no works at any time contribute anything to the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life, which one receives through faith alone in Jesus Christ. The absence of good works does not endanger one's eternal place in heaven. However, God gives eternal rewards according to one's works. Next, uh, we have a slide here to show how Chafer Seminary looks at their overall theological education in the structure of of culture and modern thought. On the left, we begin with God's Word, and we build from God's Word through exegesis a sound biblical theology. And from that biblical theology, we build categories and develop a systematized biblical theology from which you develop systematic theology. Systematic theology then build, it, it provides that framework we're being able to interact with the world around us and events in everyday life. So it feeds into mathematics, the hard sciences, social sciences, philosophy, arts and music, entertainment, all of which are to be studied within the framework of divine revelation. The curriculum at Chafer Seminary is built on exegesis of Scripture. In the first year, you are introduced to Greek and Hebrew exegesis and the basics of systematic theology. In the second year, you move on to intermediate Greek and Hebrew exegesis and more basics of systematic theology. In the third year, having learned the rudimentary skills in Greek and Hebrew exegesis and studying through different books of the Bible and exegeting 
uh, through them you begin to develop a biblical theology. That is not, uh, the term biblical theology is a technical term. It's not biblical theology versus a non-biblical theology. Biblical theology is a technical term for the fact that John has a certain theology. We studied Johannine literature for what six and a half years. We went through the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John, and now we're in Revelation. We've seen that John has his own vocabulary. He emphasizes certain doctrines that Paul may not emphasize in the same way. So that's that's what's called biblical theology. Is looking at how each book of the Bible has its own emphases, its own key doctrines, its own uh, development. And that's the next step. So you look at each book of the Bible. What's the, what does Genesis teach about God? What does Genesis teach about salvation? What does Genesis teach about nature? What does Genesis teach about man? Then you go to Exodus and you ask the same questions. What does Exodus teach about it? God, man, nature, sin, salvation, etc. And then if you get through looking at all five books of the Pentateuch like that, then you come back and you build a theology of the Pentateuch. Then you look at the next section, you do that, and you build this stair step until having studied every book of the Bible and what every book of the Bible teaches about God, man, nature, sin, salvation, then you construct your systematic theology as it derives from every section of the Bible. So that's the, that's the model that is followed in the curriculum. In the fourth year, you move from biblical theology to systematic, systematized biblical theology plus an introduction to systematic theology and, again, ongoing classes on Greek and Hebrew exegesis. Now, here's an idea of where Chafer meets. They rent space in an office building in Orange County in Southern California. Here's an aerial shot of the office building uh, where they have a library and classrooms and a few, uh, few administrative offices. Here's a shot of Professor John Nash with Tim Nichols, who graduated this last year, and he's been hired as an instructor now at the school. Here's a shot of the library. It's rather small at this point, and this is a real need that the school has is to build a library. If you will be to become accredited, you have to have a library with a certain number of volumes, and so the library is continuing to expand and to grow and fortunately, in uh, that area of California, there are a number of other well-established uh, seminaries. You have uh, Biola and Talbot Graduate School of Theology, Master's Seminary, UCLA, a number of other schools. So the students have access to a lot of good uh, libraries beyond the uh, budding library at, at Chafer. Here's the outside entrance to the building where they're located. Notice the bright, sunny skies of Southern California. I don't know. You know, when I go out there for the WHW conference like I, like this last week, I have no idea what the weather was like. No clue. I think it was cool at night because I got to go out to eat one night. But other than that, I'm in the hotel the whole time, get up about 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm down ready to teach class at 8 in the bowels of the of the uh, big, large conference rooms there. And I teach until... Go to, off and on. I teach about four hours in the morning and two or three in the afternoon. Have a quick lunch in my room and go over my notes for the afternoon. And by the time I finally get done with everything, it's dark outside. So I, I never have a clue what's going on in uh, California when I'm out there. Here's a look at the faculty. Uh, John Beck, who teaches systematic theology. Also has his uh, THM from uh, Dallas Seminary, and he's got a doctor of ministries from Western Seminary. Uh, Jack Littlefield instructs in biblical languages. He's got an MDiv from Talbot, and a TH, and he's a THM candidate from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. There's uh, George Meisinger, Dr. Meisinger, who's familiar to everyone here. Uh, John Nash, also an assistant pro- uh, professor of biblical languages, THM from Dallas Seminary. Uh, Tim Nichols, who has his THM from Chafer Seminary. Uh, Dr. John Nemelos has THM and PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary. Mike Thompson, who's got his THM in Hebrew from uh, Dallas Seminary and uh, has done PhD studies in Hebrew. Then we have adjunct faculty. There's an old, older picture of... Dr. Fruchtenbaum, we've seen him in recent days. 
And there's an older picture of Tommy Ice. Yeah, Dr. Ice goes out every year and teaches a couple of modules. Um, Dr. Zane Hodges, who was taught me first-year Greek when I was at Dallas Seminary, goes out and teaches modules at uh, Chafer Seminary frequently, and also Phil Heideman, who not only teaches, he I think he oversees some of the extension of correspondence courses that Chafer offers, plus he is he goes over and works with Jim Myers in uh, Kiev. So this is a shot of the faculty at their monthly faculty meeting. There have been two graduation ceremonies from Chafer in 2001 and in 2004. At their first graduation, the keynote speaker was Dr. Earl Rodmacher, who's the President Emeritus of Western Seminary and one of the great proponents of both traditional dispensationalism and free grace uh, gospel. And then this last year, Bob Wilkin, who's the founder of the Grace Evangelical Society, uh, was the keynote speaker. And here are the graduates from this last year. Tim Nichols on the left, then uh, Joe Santana, and then Bogdana Shuvar, Bogdana's sister, Oksana, Bogdana and her sister, Oksana, were, uh, uh, came out of Jim's ministry in Kiev. And Bogdana is just a whiz at the languages, and she's a secretary at Chafer Seminary, and her sister Oksana is now uh, in Cairo as a missionary. So that just shows some of the fruit of these two ministries that we support. So for information, you can go to their website, www.chafer.edu. Check out the internet. They have their, most of their journal articles are posted on the internet, uh, plus other resources that we are developing for, uh, prep school teachers, Sunday school teachers, and pastors. Now it's fitting that we should emphasize a seminary such as Chafer in the midst of our study on the trustworthiness of the Bible. Because it is the Bible that is the center of Christianity. And today we live in an era when there's so many assaults on the Bible by people who are so-called Christians, and they challenge the veracity and the truthfulness of the Bible. Oh, it contains a kernel of truth, some say. It is, uh, there's great moral principles, good teaching there, but, but you don't really want to take it literally. It's, it's been too shaped by these uh, primitive cultures and beliefs that modern man can no longer hold to such as capital punishment and and a strict view of the family and the authority of the man in the home and the man in marriage and, and parents in the home. And, and its views on child-rearing are absolutely archaic because it teaches corporal punishment that, that if you... If parents are not willing to discipline their children, if they spare the rod, they'll spoil the child. And so uh, they, uh, this, we don't want to take the Bible too literally. Well, that's just not what the, what the Bible teaches or what we believe. And the Bible is not a book that even contains error. And so in our series so far, we have looked at int- the introduction of the uh, issues related to the study of the Bible and the trustworthiness of the Bible. And we looked at the biblical claims that are made for itself, that this is not just a book about God, but the Bible claims to be the direct revelation from God, that God has spoken. And I pointed out in the introduction to this series that if God is there, nothing else matters. But if there is no God, then nothing matters. But if God is there and he is the personal God of the Bible, then he is a God who can not only communicate to us, but he can communicate clearly to us. He knows precisely how to communicate to man, and he has constructed this marvelous book that we have in such a way that no matter what culture you are the product of, whether you're Asian, Indian, uh, Western European, whether you're African, whether you're male, female, whether you lived in 1000 BC or 1000 AD, no matter what language you are uh, raised in, you can understand the principles of Scripture. It is a cross-cultural book that does not contain any error, so that God is able to communicate to us, He's able to communicate clearly to us, 
and he's able to communicate to us in a way that we can understand what he what he has communicated. It's not guesswork. We don't sit around with some sort of uh, uh, theological Ouija board trying to figure out uh, what the Bible says, trying to open up Bible codes, and I'll address the whole issue of Bible code probably before we're done with this with this series. But uh, in case I don't get there, let me just say one thing: don't 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 fall for any of this Bible code stuff. For example, uh, the the whole concept of the Bible code that came out what was that six or seven eight years ago. This book on the Bible code is that embedded within the Scripture is this are these uh, um, codes, and if you what they've done is they've taken the Hebrew text and they've run all the letters from all the words together, taken out all the spaces, and if you run some sort of number sequence code, and that is find every fifth letter, every tenth letter, or every you know thousandth letter, they they find, ran these computer programs and they discovered that if you run a number sequence code, then you can discover certain certain uh, hidden messages in the Bible. And the biggest problem with this, and the one that I always go to, it's one everybody can understand, is it presupposes that we have the exact, precise original. We don't. There are no two Hebrew manuscripts that we have that agree uh, 100%. Now, what do I mean by that? Unless you go running off thinking, oh, we don't know what the original says. There are spelling differences. In some manuscripts, a word's left out. In another manuscript, a synonym is substituted. So there's no one manuscript that we can say this reflects the original writing 100%. Furthermore, over the process of time, just as in English, there were spelling uh, modernizations in Hebrew. And so there are words that were spelled one way in the early years, and then as they developed various systems of writing vowels, those early symbols were added, and then they developed a second system of writing vowels. The first system was called matris lationis, and they were consonants that were inserted to represent a vowel. And then when the Masoretes came along, they developed a pointing system. Well, they didn't take out the earlier vowel System. They just added the pointing system. So the question is, how, which spelling was the correct spelling? If you have a number, a, a number sequence that you're running, a, a skip sequence that you're running to discover a code, you have to have an absolute original. If you if you insert, uh, let's say, if you're looking at the whole of the Old Testament, where you have literally uh, hundreds of thousands of letters. And if you insert 500 letters, then you change the whole code. You change everything. And if one of those is wrong, then it changes everything else. So the whole presupposition of the, of the, this biblical code idea is, is completely false. So just don't fall prey to that kind of idiocy. It's just part of modern mysticism that somehow the Bible doesn't mean what it says on the surface. It has some hidden meaning. And only those who are super spiritual or have a supercomputer can figure out what the Bible really means. Well, in the course of our study, last time we looked at how do we prove the Bible. And you don't really prove the Bible like you might prove a, uh, a proposition in geometry or in logic or something in the classroom. But you can demonstrate the veracity of the Bible. If the Bible is what it claims to be, then there won't be errors. There won't be historical errors. There won't be errors of other, of other kinds in the Scripture. So what we can do is we can look for confirmatory evidence in history. And one of the th- avenues that we go to is archaeology. Now, archaeology can't prove the Bible in one sense because the Bible is teaching uh, doctrine. It's teaching the spiritual life. It's teaching doctrines about salvation and sin, and that's not going to be proven through archaeology. But what archaeology will demonstrate is that the the culture, cultural aspects that are presented in the scripture, for example, if in our study of Genesis, we'll look, examine the culture of the patriarchs, and that was the period roughly around 2000 B.C., from about the time of Abram's birth in 2166 B.C., up to the time that Jacob and his sons enter into Egypt with the death of Joseph somewhere around 1800 
B.C. So that's called the patriarchal period, and we can glean a number of things about cultural practices that are given in Scripture. And so when we, in archaeology, as we discover certain things that can be dated to that time frame, we see that there is a match, that you don't have, uh, uh, a when, when archaeology looks at that evidence, it paints a picture of life at that time, and it fits the picture of life at that time that we have in the Scripture. It doesn't, it, that doesn't mean that we have uh, manuscript evidence or inscription evidence that mentions Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it portrays this kind of culture that the Bible portrays for that time period. And there have been a number of archaeological discoveries that have confirmed things that were questioned or doubted in Scripture, and we went through that last time. What I want to look at this morning is another line of evidence to show the divine origin of the Bible, and that has to do with the prophecies that are contained in the Bible. The Bible is unique in that it contains prophecies and detailed prophecies that have already been fulfilled in history. And there are many prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled in history, but the prophecies that have been made that were fulfilled in history, we can go back and we can see when the prophecies were made, and we can look to see how they were fulfilled. And that gives us an idea that that prophecy is fulfilled in a literal fashion. So let's begin by looking at the biblical test for prophecy. You know, we live in an age when there's all kinds of prophecies. You can, uh, if you're awake in the middle of the night, you can turn on the television and you can find various advertisements for uh, various fortune tellers and tarot card readers and others, and you can call 1-800-numbers uh, and get your prophecy or, or uh, find out what your future is going to be. And if you uh, look at these kinds of prophecies and the astrological predictions for your sign that show up in the local newspaper or in books that you pick up in the library, they're very, fairly generalized prophecies. They, are, they do not contain the kinds of specific details that uh, can be tested and verified. They can be manipulated and shaped to fit just about any circumstance or situation. You go back and you look at some of the prophecies in Nostradamus that people want to go to, and they could fit any kind of scenario. They just don't contain the kind of specifics that the... Uh, Bible contains what the Bible and and they're not always accurate sometimes they're even among those so-called Christians who claim they have the gift of prophecy they just indicate uh, that they have a good they're good judges of human character or they understand the trends of the times fairly well and they can make good guesses but they're not right most of the time they're they're not right all of the time but the Bible has a different view of prophecy the Bible gives hundreds of specific statements of prophecy, hundreds of years in advance that come true with 100% precision. Isaiah 46.9, God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Verse 10, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. The Bible claims that because God is omniscient, and because God is the sovereign God of history, God is the one who can declare exactly what will take place in human history. He knows precisely what will take place in our lives tomorrow, the next day, next year. He knows what will take place in history. He knows who will win the presidential election. He knows uh, everything that will take place, and he can declare it hundreds or thousands of years in advance to precise detail, and it will come to pass exactly as he says. No other religion in the world provides detailed prophecy. Islam doesn't. Uh, Buddhism doesn't. Mormonism doesn't. Only the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, of the Judeo-Christian Bible contain detailed uh, prophecies that are fulfilled with minute precision. The divine standard for prophecy is given in Deuteronomy chapter 18. This was the test that was given for the Jews to utilize whenever someone claimed 
that they were speaking a word from God whenever they claimed that they were a prophet. Deuteronomy 18.20 we read, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, God is speaking here, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So it was the death penalty. If you were, if you claimed to prophesy, if you were into astrology or necromancy or any of the other, uh, predictive, uh, charlatan skills and you claimed to speak in the name of God or any other God and you were wrong, it was the death penalty. So you couldn't be wrong once. You couldn't have a 99.9% accuracy rate. Or you were dead. You had to have 100% and that was it. It's a high standard because that would demonstrate that it was from God. So, now not all of the prophecies, of course, could be tested. That's why Some of them would not be fulfilled until after the prophet's life. But every prophet gave numerous prophecies that would be fulfilled in his own lifetime in order to validate his, his ministry, that he was indeed a prophet speaking from God. Deuteronomy 18.21 states, And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Okay, what's our criterion? How do we evaluate so-called prophecies? Verse 22 goes on, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And it goes on to explain that, that if he's wrong, he gets the death penalty. So the test for uh, prophecy was exact precision. Isaiah 41.21, there is a challenge given to the false prophets during the time of apostasy at that stage in Israel's life in the 7th century B.C. Present your case, the Lord says in Isaiah 41.21. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. This is a challenge to these false teachers. If they're really teaching the truth, if they're really speaking for God, let them come forth and utter prophecies that we can test. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them, and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed, and see it together. So the test was always 100% accuracy. Biblical prophecy can be defined as a declaration of future events which includes sufficient detail as to exclude human generalizations and vague predictions. It's not somebody who just happens to be pretty smart and can judge and evaluate what the trends are. I mean, we can all sit down and we can perhaps cite some uh, stock market analysts who have done a pretty good job of analyzing the trends of the stock market over the last 10 years. There may be one or two out there that have had some lucky guesses, but that's what they are. It's a matter of experience. It's a matter of luck, but they're not 100% correct. If they were, they would be extremely wealthy. Uh, if you had somebody who had the gift of prophecy, they could do quite well in Las Vegas. But you see, you don't have anybody who can do that. When you have people in churches who stand up and give prophecies, they're usually pretty vague and, and uh, vague generalizations, and people are so subjective and they are gullible. We, the, people often want to believe these kinds of things, and so they they hear what wasn't said, they they add details to the generalizations and, and suddenly say, oh, yeah, that was exactly right. That's what ex- He predicted exactly what would happen in my life. Then you go back and listen to it, and, and it was pretty vague, and it could fit any kind of situation. But that's not what we find in the Scripture. What we find in the Scripture are detailed prophecies of future events. And so I want to look at two of these uh, this morning, we probably have time to come back and look at some later on. One example of just a short prophecy is given in 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 2. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a child Josiah by name shall be born to the house of David, 
And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. Well, what's happening here is this prophet is predicting that in the future there will be a king. There will be a king who will restore orthodoxy to Israel, that despite the fact that there are all of these false teachers and false prophets, this king, there will be a king that comes along, and this king will destroy these, these false prophets. He will uh, bring them under capital punishment and kill them. And this will be, um, this will be fulfilled. Now, 1 Kings 13.2 takes place 300 years before the birth of Josiah. And 1 Kings 13.2 not only, not only says what he will do, but he names the king precisely. So there is precise detail here. There is no way this could be fulfilled, uh, apart from God's knowledge of the future. Another prophecy that I want to look at is found in Ezekiel chapter 26. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 26. The 26th through the 28th chapter of Ezekiel contain a prophecy of God's judgment against the Phoenician city of Tyre. Chapter 28 is the well-known chapter that presents the lamentation and funeral dirge against the uh, both the prince of Tyre, who's the human ruler of Tyre, and the king of Tyre, who is the power behind the human, human leader, and that is Satan. But we just want to look at the prophecy that's given about the destruction of Tyre in chapter 26. Ezekiel chapter 26, we're told in the first verse, and it came to pass in the eleventh year... On the first day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me saying, and this is, this eleventh year is the year just prior to Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem. So verse one tells us that this eleventh uh, year is the, is 587 BC. Now in 586 BC, you have the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. That's the context. came to pass in the eleventh year on the first day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha, she's broken, who was the gateway of the peoples. Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. So Tyre looks on the invasions of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the leader of the Babylonian Empire, as an opportunity for Tyre to gain from the spoils of the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. Tyre is no small city. Tyre and Sidon were the two major uh, cities in Phoenicia what is modern Lebanon. They were coastal cities. They were, Tyre was a major port. It was a major commercial center. And uh, uh, their, one of their major uh, businesses was commercial fishing. So they had a large fleet. They were known to have a large navy. The city of Tyre itself was right on the coast, and it was strongly fortified with a... 150 foot high wall that was 15 feet thick and it surrounded the city on the land side so that they were protected from invading armies on the land side and on the seaward side they had their strong navy to protect them. It was a strong flourishing city from the time before the conquest of Canaan. So there was a settlement and a commercial village there from at least 1400 B.C. Now, the time period that we're talking about is a thousand years later. So Tyre had been there for numerous years. Tyre was the seat of Hiram, the king from whom David bought uh, brought cedars, the cedars, famous cedars of Lebanon that were used in the construction of David's palace. And later his son Solomon bought cedars again from Hiram, the king of Tyre, to, to
to build the uh, temple. So it was a very prosperous, very large city. It had numerous uh, suburbs and outlying villages, and there were probably uh, two or three hundred thousand people who lived in Tyre and in the uh, greater metropolitan uh, area of Tyre. So this uh, this prophecy is given about 587 B.C. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar invades and destroys Jerusalem. And then in 585 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar turns his attention to Tyre. And he has a 13-year siege of Tyre. Usually a siege in the ancient world lasted only a few years. But he has a 13-year siege, which goes down to about 572 uh, B.C., at which time he finally invades and he tears down the wall. The prophecy is given in 587, and the initial fulfillment of this prophecy is some 15 years later. And I want you to note the detail that is given here. Look at verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will cause many nations to come against you. Okay, that's the first aspect of this prophecy. There will be many nations that will come against Tyre. As the sea causes its waves to come up, so it's going to be one after another, one nation after another down through history. So God is using the imagery of uh, the sea on this maritime power. Uh, verse 4, And they shall destroy the walls of, Ty- of Tyre and break down her towers. They were considered to be impregnable. And because they were impregnable, it took Nebuchadnezzar 13 years, but he ultimately did it. I will also, the prophecy goes on to say, I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. In fact, the name Tyre means a rock. And so there was a pun in the Hebrew here that God was going to take this town, this city called Tyre, and would scrape it down to where it was nothing left than just the bare rock. The topsoil itself would be scraped away. Every vestige of this city would be destroyed. And verse 5 says that that it should be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. It's going to be reduced down to, to just the bare tops of the rock, and fishermen are going to spread their nets there. Here you have this major metropolitan area. This would be uh, comparable to saying that New York is going to be destroyed in an attack and everything is going to be removed and scraped down to just uh, where the topsoil is gone. You just have bare rock there, and it's going to be nothing left but a place where fishermen are going to spread their nets. That was the impact of this kind of a prophecy in the ancient world. It was unimaginable that such a destruction could take place. Verse 6, Also her daughter villages, that is the suburbs and surrounding towns, her daughter villages which are in the field shall be slain by the sword, then they shall know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So it names the leader who will do this. Now someone may say, well, this would be... um, This is understandable because Nebuchadnezzar has already invaded Israel two times at this point, and Babylon was the major power, so that would be expected. But that doesn't mean it's going to necessarily take place or in the details that are given. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of the kings, with horses, with chariots, and with horsemen, and an army, with many people. He will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the field, so the suburbs will be wiped out. He will heap up a siege mound against you, and he, that was fulfilled 13 uh, years. Uh, he will build a wall against you and raise a defense against you. He will direct his uh, battering rams against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Verse 10, because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons, and the chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that has been breached. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets 
He will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. Notice up to this time it's been a third-person singular pronoun, his, his, he. Okay, that's Nebuchadnezzar. But there's a shift in verse 13. They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. Now, what? Who, who's the they? The they are the many nations that will come against you. See, there's a shift. This isn't, this prophecy wasn't completely fulfilled by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the beginning, but it took another 250 years before this prophecy was fulfilled in all of its detail. What happened is that Nebuchadnezzar invaded, laid a siege for, for 13 years. Uh, he stormed the city and then destroyed the walls just as it is prophesied, just as it's, it's given. In these verses, he tears down the towers, he tore down the walls. But what took place during those 13 years is that the people were, were fully aware of what happened in the ancient world. And once the enemy came in, once they invaded the gates, they would take, they would plunder them. They would lose all of their riches, all their possessions, all their material gains. And there was an island a half a mile off the coast. So this is their retreat area. And during that 13 years, the people entire uh, took all of their uh, wealth, all their possessions, all their material goods, and they moved everything a half mile offshore to this island so that when Nebuchadnezzar finally destroyed the city, there was no plunder. There were no riches. They, the people escaped to the island, and they built a new city of Tyre. But the prophecy here is focusing on the original mainland city of Tyre, and it is completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. But all the rubble, all the remains were there, but it was not uh, the main city anymore, although a few people moved back to and lived there during the next few years. It was the island city of Tyre, which was now the central focus. 250 years later, 250 years later, so now we're down into the area of about five about 325 B.C., you have the invasion of the Middle East by Alexander the Great. He invades with uh, with 30,000 infantry, 15,000 cavalry, and he has a very small navy. As uh, he comes across in about approximately 325 B.C., he comes down through Turkey, defeats Darius III, and heads towards Egypt. And the first major uh, enemy that he has to deal with are the Phoenicians. But the Phoenicians are resistant. So he heads towards Tyre, and it's his goal to destroy Tyre. And as he approaches Tyre, he recognizes that he can't get to them because they're all on this island that's a half mile offshore, and he doesn't have much of a navy. So what Alexander does is he gets all his engineers together and gets all his soldiers, and they start tearing down all of the rubble, everything that remains from Nebuchadnezzar's conquest, and they start throwing it into the sea. And he, from the rubble of Tyre, he built a 2,000-foot causeway out to this island. And they had to, in order to fill in all of the gaps and to get all the way out to the island, they had to scrape the topsoil off of the rocks from the major city of Tyre, in order to get there. As they got closer to the city, they had built walls around the new city out on the island, and they would shoot arrows and throw spears, and they had catapults so that uh, uh, the Greeks had to develop mobile shields called tortoises that they would work behind to uh, protect them from these assaults. Uh, then uh, Alexander built 160-foot-high towers called uh, Hel- Helipolis, that's spelled H-E-L-E-P-O-L-E-I-S. And these were assault towers that they rolled across the causeway up to the, up to the walls of Tyre on the island, and then they were able to uh, overcome the walls and to defeat and destroy that city. But the result of of Alexander's invasion was that it finished the details of the prophecy. As it's stated back in verse 4, 
I will scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock, and it shall be a place for the spreading of nets. And to this day there's no habitation there where the old mainland city of Tyre was, and for hundreds of years it was a place where the only activity was that the fishermen from the small village that's out on that island, the fishermen would come and they would spread their nets out to dry on the bare rocks where the ancient city had once been. This is tremendous specificity. This just can't happen by chance. And this is just one of many prophecies. We'll come back next time and look at a couple of more Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in detail. And then we will look at uh, at a one specific New Testament prophecy and how it was fulfilled in detail. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word this morning to recognize that it is the centerpiece of our life. And it is in your word that we are told of our so great salvation, that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet you, in your love, provided a perfect salvation, a perfect Savior, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Father, we pray that as we sit here this morning, if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation, or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to believe that Jesus Christ died for you, that he paid the penalty for your sins on the cross, and that you're relying on him and him alone for your salvation. Father, we thank you for the things we've studied today, and we pray that you would challenge us with them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.